0: What does being a new CISO mean to me? Well, I think it just means taking on a new set of expectations, holding yourself to a a new degree of accountability to be aligned with business and, and going from someone who maybe is just solely focused on security as a practice to someone who is looking at how security fits into the larger business context of the organization
1: From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face and how they overcome them. I'm Steve Moore and today I sit down with Steve Burson, CISO of Cambia Health Solutions. Steve and I talk about how to manage, oddly, customer feedback and how understanding what motivates other people outside of security can be the key to successful security partnerships. Learning how to step back from work can be a great way to get clarity on how to tackle the projects that really need your attention. However, for this to work, you must learn to trust all the experts on your team, a good form of delegation. Inversely, that same level of trust with stakeholders means that a CISO has to take the time to understand how they're measured, on their own success, and what motivates them. All right. Good morning, Steve. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, if you would, for the listener, tell us a little about yourself. Hey, good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me.
0: My name is Steve Person. I'm currently the Chief Information Security Officer at Cambia Health Solutions, headquartered here in Portland, Oregon. We are a greater than 100 year old company that does business primarily across the, the four states of Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Utah here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. And we, you might know our, our Regents brand name as the Blue Cross Blue Shield branded health insurance plans in those four states. And then we've also got quite a diverse portfolio of health and wellness-related companies under that Cambia umbrella as well that I
1: support. Oh, thanks for that. I, I, uh, we randomly had a chance to meet in New Orleans, of all places, years ago, if I remember correctly, at a Blue Summit. Is that correct?
0: That's right. Yeah. One of the really neat things about the, the Blues is that there's a lot of collaboration among the security leaders inside the, the association. And, and if you're not familiar with how that's structured, the, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association is, is uh, similar to a, a franchise arrangement, if you think of it like that. And there are 30-something different plans across the country of which you know, we are one. And so, uh, you know, a lot of similar challenges we're facing, a lot of great collaboration and uh, really, you know, kind of helps the iron sharpen iron. And you guys were, uh, you know, one of the, the sponsors of one of our events. And we appreciate that. We, we rely on those sponsors and always uh, get a fresh perspective by, by having them come in and speak to the group as well. So thanks for that.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome. And I- I'm surprised we didn't bump across one another because I worked Previously worked for a blue. Uh, I don't recall. I don't think we ever had met before, but glad to have met you now. And then we were in contact uh, via email. And thank you for listening and and now agreeing to be uh, a guest.
0: You bet. Yeah, I actually had a, an unusual long car ride without children where I got to choose what was on the radio, and I and I threw the podcast on there because I re- I remembered you and just really loved hearing from all the different security leaders you spoke with, and really loved the way you you interacted with them and. Very happy to to be able to share some thoughts
1: myself with you today. Oh, that's awesome. So you are you have been the CISO for around three and a half years, but you didn't start out that way. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and really spent most of my my formative years, I like to say, uh, working on big Unix infrastructure at Sun Microsystems up here in Oregon and. And a lot of people don't know, but actually Sun's high-end uh, computing test and manufacturing facility was up here in the west suburbs of Portland. And so I spent the first 10 years or so uh, working there after college. And then I uh, actually spent a couple of years, was very fortunate to, to spend a couple years in a beautiful uh, area just outside of a national park supporting a, a rural hospital and their security and networking endeavors, and, and really fell in love with healthcare there, Steve. you know I think just very unique challenges in healthcare and also a, a deep sense of reward in, in helping elevate security uh, in that environment. And then uh, in, in 2014, my wife and I uh, decided to come back to Portland and, and uh, I came back as a security architect in my current organization and, and just really developed a, a great relationship with the current CISO and through a couple of transitions,
1: landed in this role. So, talk if you would a little bit about. So, you're a security architect. Uh, you're at a company that you like, and did you decide to become the CISO, or did someone decide for you?
0: Yeah, good
1: question. And and I suspect there's never a black and white answer to that question.
0: And I would say my situation was the same. You know, it was really kind of uh, you know succession planning, and and it wasn't an opportunity that I expected to, to pop up so quickly, and I, I certainly wasn't in a hurry to aspire for that but but I think it turned out to be a, a very natural a very natural fit with the things that I you know I, I like to think I'm good at and so certainly having security expertise and a, and a good background in in uh, technology is helpful <laughs> but uh, getting exposed through architecture and and eventually a management role on the security team really helped me to to start to to get into the other Non-technical, non-security-related functions that that make you successful as a technology leader and a risk management leader, and uh, certainly didn't walk in on day one feeling like I had all the answers. But very supportive organization, very supportive leadership, and and thankfully in my situation, Steve, the previous CISO actually stayed with the organization, and so and is still here today. And so I, I've you know had a, a lot of good support. Whereas I know you know others, other folks maybe walk into a situation where they're that doesn't exist. So, you know, I think I've just been very, very blessed to have a, a really strong support structure around me throughout that, that growth
1: period. It sounds that way. But as a former, I hit on this a lot on the show, because I think it's, it needs to be discussed. So you're a Unix admin, you're an architect, you had support, you had the prior CISO still there. What weren't you good at when you taking over as a, as a CISO or as a joining security leadership? What were you not comfortable with? Yeah, it's a great question.
0: You know, I think I had been in kind of a lead role, you know, for most of my life, and and uh, even even when I was younger, had a lot of visibility to to leadership conversations and a lot of influence in those things. But I think it was new to be sort of the person accountable for that, right? And there's a very different uh, mindset to being the person who has a good idea that someone else is responsible for executing, and the person that you know, is actually accountable for seeing those things due to completion, you know, and I think a couple of the softer skills that I wasn't as comfortable with as I am today around, you know, public speaking, and, you know, certainly, uh, you know, there was a lot more travel and kind of working on how do I manage my work and get more organized, um, you know, those were some of the things I had to work on, and, and I think also delegation, right, I had a, had a uh-huh. professor in college, who would start every single class with the sentence, delegation is the key to effective management. And I remember that to this yes. day, and I suspect all of his students do. And you know, it, it's very different to be you know, sort of the doer and then to get into the position where in order to be successful, you, you actually need to get very comfortable giving other people work, trusting them to complete it, and, and kind ah. of finding a way to get that comfort.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said one of the key words there. I was going to ask you, and then you answered it kind of naturally. That's the biggest thing I see. Poor security organizations, there's a couple traits uh, that I see in, in poor organizations. And one of them is lack of good delegation. And I think it gets into an element of, if you don't see it, it's because of lack of trust, where the work or the leader above believes that they're the best person to get the work done. And in fact, they very well may be, but that what they don't realize in many cases is that that acts as a, a throttle uh, to the success and the velocity of that program. So if, you're, if you don't trust, even if you know it's not going to get done as well, uh, you have to trust over time that it will get better and, and you have to start giving work to other people. So it's interesting, you, you kind of came to that conclusion or good leaders are good delegators.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, I, I've always loved strategy and vision setting. And, and, um, I think, you know, always been someone that was called upon to participate in those conversations, but it's quite a different thing to, to really be the one who needs to unify that for, for an entire team and then help to figure out how you can not only inspire them to, to, you know, follow that vision and, and hear their feedback if the vision's not spot on, but also like you said, trust them to achieve the objectives that will help us stay true to that North Star. And I think, you know, if you asked my team today, they would say I'm not perfect
1: at it, but it's, it's an area of self awareness and, and something I'm actively, you know, conscious of. Something that, uh, for those interested more on the topic of trust, there's a great book uh, involving sort of business, business leadership called The Speed of Trust by Covey. It's actually Covey's son. If you're familiar with some of Covey's other books and the name, but the speed of trust is fantastic. Kind of a, a small aside there. What do you think is one thing, so you've been now CISO for three and a half years. What's one thing that you are worse at now that you're a CISO? Speaking of delegation, what are some things you had to give up and maybe you're less, <laughs> less sharp at because of the fact that you no longer do them? You don't have the muscle memory.
0: Yeah, Steve, this is easy. I think focus, right? Just sitting, sitting down and focusing on one thing for, for as long as I'd like to give it attention sometimes. Mm. because my, my time is sliced now very thinly. Uh, but, but I think it's something that, you know, I've been able to balance through a little bit of kind of evening time, a little bit of weekend time here and there. And and I have a, a young family. And I'm very conscious of, of keeping that, you know, a top priority or the top priority in my life. But, you know, finding opportunities to sort of step away from the noise long enough and, and actually, identifying the things that need that level of focus. Because I think another, you know, going back to your previous question, another thing I had to get comfortable with was that I couldn't put as much time and energy into some things as I wanted to, to, to deliver the level of quality that I expected of myself, but really starting to figure out which things didn't actually need that, right? Which things people not actually expecting that level of of quality and perfection, right? And getting comfortable with like, what is the right level of effort to put into different, different pieces of work? But
1: really, finding time to focus. Yeah. Did your technical skills change? Any have they gotten worse? Well,
0: I mean, I certainly haven't exercised all of them <laughs> as much as I as I have in the past. I don't, I don't, unfortunately, get to spend any time in vi anymore. But certainly, try to uh, rely on the experts on the team to kind of keep me fresh on strategically you know, which are the right technologies and, and which are the right technology strategies. I'm certainly guilty of not stepping as far away of that part as uh, as I probably will need to eventually. But uh, I think that's a process because that, that is my first love.
1: It's tough. It's tough to give those things up. It was not easy for me at first, but I ended up sort of falling in love with leadership and the new set of challenges because it's something I never thought about doing. And then it sort of happened. And yeah, uh, I think
0: uh, it, it's a good comment, right? that one of the things about becoming a CiSO is you know you have to convince yourself to get excited about different types of challenges. But I think you know I probably got over a hump maybe a year and a half, two years ago, where things like managing to a budget and things like, you know metrics and things that that were kind of less sexy than some of the technology challenges really started to get excited about them as, as just another problem that, that needs a solution and start to you know put some creativity towards them. And so I think once you once you can make that mind shift that hey these are equally exciting challenges if you let them be and they they need creativity. And oh by the way, there's actually a lot of opportunity because a lot of these things aren't done well in security shops. And you, you actually have a lot of opportunity to, to excel.
1: So speaking of not done well What's maybe one bit of advice you would have given your younger self? So maybe before you became a CISO, from a, if you were giving mentorship advice to yourself, what would that be? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I loved, I loved economics in college,
0: and, and it wasn't until later in my career that I kind of connected the dots on this. But, you know, I think I would encourage folks to really... Sincerely try to understand the motivations and incentives of of their stakeholders before drawing too many conclusions or, or making too many assumptions and, and What I really mean there is that when you when you can put yourself in, in other folks' shoes, you will find that most people genuinely want to do security well there, there really aren't a lot of people out there that that hate security, but you have to really Sit down and and work with them to understand how they're measured on their success and also what motivates them, what kind of work is interesting to them, what kind of challenges are interesting to them. And only then can you really start to understand how you can partner with them to achieve shared security objectives. So I think really just understanding people, and, and I mean that sincerely, not just as kind of a how can I get what I want from them type exercise, but really empathizing with them. And, and putting yourself in their shoes and don't even start thinking about, you know, your, your security outcomes that you want until you've kind of taken that first step.
1: Okay, so do us a favor and let's say I'm the EVP of, I use this on another show, so I'll use it again. The EVP of making money and that's a real title and I work, you and I work at a company, maybe not your current employer, but we're, maybe this is future. And so we're, we're both in the future, we're stretching here. I'm, we're both in the future and I'm EVP of making money. And I really don't know you. I don't really understand your, your motives, but uh, we're in a meeting together. Like, how do you intro that? If you're face-to-face and you're not doing this electronically or asynchronously, like what's the intro to that? I mean, how is it, are you interviewing them? Like, what would you say to me?
0: Yeah, I think the first conversation is, you know, really do our customers care about security? And if so, how do we get feedback about what they're looking for? And how can I help you, Mr. What did you call yourself? The executive VP of making money. money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so I'm saying, you know, how can I help you achieve your outcome? And, you know, what data do we have? If we're in a, a B2B situation, you know, are we completing RFPs? And if we're completing RFPs, you know, what security questions are our Our customers asking us or maybe if we're in a b2c situation you know do we have consumer feedback and surveys and and things that we do that would help us understand you know how we could actually help sell more things by having a better security story and then i think the other thing is is looking at how can we kind of reframe the conversation around trust with our customers right and so our customers have no matter what we're selling they have some expectation of security and we are looking to, to keep their trust and, and earn their trust. And so, how can I not only kind of help execute all the things on the back end that maybe are more technical, but also partner together to share that story, right? And, and maybe work with our marketing partners. Or, you know, I think I, I, the security folks aren't generally the ones that are best positioned to build a beautiful web page about trust. But how could we put that more front and center? And how could we be more proactive with that? And how could we kind of make that trust something that is just something we just assume because we have such a good brand around it that we, we actually maybe spend less energy, you know, responding to questions and things. And we're more proactive and, and they don't really have to grill us to understand what we're doing. We're, we put it front and center. So, you know, I think whatever you're doing is just, again, going back to figuring out motivations and incentives, right? The, the chief money-making officer is clearly measured by making more money. And so, you know, how can we partner on
1: security's role in that? Yeah. And and I think what I was really hoping for, you covered it, but just plainly to say, hey, if I'm EVP of making money, I think that you have to take a moment to identify things maybe that involve security that slow down the, let's say, the approval of doing additional business or that slow down potentially uh, the evaluation of a third party or... That give um, maybe the sales staff, if you have that, or whatever those ambassadors you have, maybe don't have high-level talking points about the benefits of the security program. And you mentioned something important that I really think is good, that if there's inbound questions about certain capabilities or features involving information security, those have to be, I think, tallied and sorted, because those make for great capabilities to sort of consider building in the future.
0: Totally. Yep.
1: And so aligning that with sales is incredibly important to say, look, this is an inbound request for new business. We had half the people asking for this and right now we have none of that. Right. And so whatever that is, right. So those, I found those conversations in the lens of what you're referencing to be very, very valuable and and man, super creative to getting things done and, keeping everyone happy. So,
0: yeah, Steve, you mentioned third party risk and, and certainly there's any number of processes in a large organization that, that slow down some of those processes. And, and I like to, I like to try to bifurcate between sort of the fast lane and the slow lane and and set expectations that, you know, if X, Y, and Z are true for a vendor, then, you know, this conversation will be pretty easy that they're in the fast lane. Right. And, uh, and that helps folks understand when they're kind of out having the conversations and doing the discovery, what couple of questions to ask to make sure that that solution does go through the fast lane. And then also, you know, if we are going to put a minority of things in the slow lane to really help them understand why that's important. And, um, and, and I think in a lot of situations, you know, we can, we can coach a vendor and I'm always happy to, to have a conversation that's more of a consultative than, than punitive. But I think it's, it's always good if we can help them understand what will get them into the fast lane so
1: that they, they you know, prefer to do that, obviously. So we had a chance to chat uh, in an earlier conversation and you had. So uh, for those that, that uh, may not know, we kind of have these, these conversations where we try to weed out what we're going to cover because there's a million things we can talk about in the show. But I like kind of jumping into some of the lesser covered topics. And so one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I really liked uh, in that chat is what is the mechanism? And, and if you would tell us, what is the mechanism to collect customer feedback? And a customer in this case is anyone the CISO's organization serves. Like it sounds like when you and I were chatting, that this is actually a capability that you've put together, at least something with a strategy around it. And so Spend a little bit of time on that because um, I don't hear this often. Can you chat a little bit about that of, of what is it, why you did it, and, and what are the, the common outcomes?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think you know, everyone will tell you that security is everyone's job, right? That's sort of a, an old platitude at this point. But I think you know, if we really want to get to that point, we have to understand what are the priorities that our, our stakeholders and our, what I would consider my customers internally are working on and, and what their priorities are, and then how we can work with them to achieve a shared outcome. So, you know, I think a, a lot of what happens here is, is around, you know, continuous improvement and, and how can we kind of work together. And I think, you know, the most important thing for me is to, to again, really sit down and put yourself in their shoes and have a conversation that, that doesn't necessarily start with banging them over the head about why they're not patching faster or whatever, but really understand what are the constraints they're working within, right? And then when you get to that point, and I use an example, um, we actually worked with our process improvement team here about a year and a half ago to hold a Kaizen event for vulnerability management. And, you know, we didn't walk into that conversation with any assumptions. It was facilitated by a kind of an objective third party. Brief interruption,
1: Brief interruption yeah, yeah. there. So for those that may not know, what is a Kaizen event? Oh, sorry.
0: Well, I, you know, I'm not going to read the Wikipedia page, but essentially, a facilitated process improvement conversation, you know, leaning on lean principles, and, and yeah. so. Sorry, did you want to add to that, Steve? No,
1: no I, I wanted because some may not know what that is, and I think it's important to cover. Um, so, this sort of notion, this idea that this is a, a, a continuous improvement and reflection, but then it sounded like you were sort of flirting with uh, instead of. Looking at flaws, you know, treating this idea of security quality, which is something that a friend of mine here in town, who's in charge of AppSec, we talk about the the birth of maybe a, a VP or a director level person over security quality, which is kind of in line. So when you said that, it, it's very exciting to hear. So this quality event related to security is kind of how I translated it in my mind. But I wanted to cover that just for to clarify for the listener. Is that is that roughly accurate? Yeah, that's that's completely accurate. Perfect. so, so you put this event together maybe even before then, another question, what prompted the meeting? Whose idea was it? And, and how did you get resources? Because it sounds like this is something more than a regular meeting.
0: Yeah, definitely. This is a, a unique event. And so what prompted it was, you know, we were looking at how do we ratchet up our service level agreements around security patching and kind of set an expectation that security patching is something that happens proactively instead of reactively. And we were spending a lot of time prior sort of uh, figuring out how best to distribute tickets. And we were running into a lot of stumbling blocks because you know, applications are really complicated. And so within a single piece of infrastructure, there might be four different teams that had some responsibility. And so figuring out who to give each ticket to, and oh, by the way, they all use different ticketing tools. So it just got to a point of unsustainability. And we said, Let's kind of pause. And before we just put additional pressure on, let's actually try to find a way to to sit down and figure out why this is so hard. And like I said earlier, it starts with assuming that people have good intentions. And so I told you before, I was a Unix admin for a number of years. And certainly, all admins I've ever met you know, don't want to be bad at security patching. They don't want to be bad at security. They want to take pride in their work. And the same goes for software engineers and everyone in the middle. And so we sat down and, and had this facilitated event. And I think it was really important that it's facilitated by someone outside of security. And so we actually have a, a small team here inside of our IT organization that's focused on continuous improvement and operational excellence. And so we engaged them and said, Boy this feels ripe you know can you guys help us with this and and they did and so we brought in folks from our app teams and our infrastructure teams and everyone spent a couple of days and we came out of that with over a hundred opportunities and you know some of those things were very simple like just going back to a business leader and asking if if maybe instead of a quarterly reboot window we could have a monthly reboot window and what we found in most situations was that Nobody had even re-asked that question in many years and that we'd been operating under a, a mandate from someone who left the organization you know, five years ago, right? And so some of those were low-hanging fruit. But one of the most exciting ones, I think, is, is that we, we reached a point with some of the applications where the team said, listen, we want to do this better. We want to be more proactive. We all agree this is important. But we have a significant burden of manual testing after any update. And
1: we said, okay, let's, yeah, go ahead. Let me, yeah, let me pause you there. So you're getting ready to jump into another topic, which is extremely important. But one of the things I want to highlight is the idea of customer feedback. Yeah. How to collect it as a CISO, that this event itself, gathering people and sort of asking them, how could we improve this process? And sort of simply said, what sort of stinks about this process? What doesn't make logical sense? That is a feedback mechanism. That is a customer, that's, that, that's effectively a human survey. Are there other ways? So before we jump into that example, I want you to cover that in detail. But before we jump into that, while we're still on the customer feedback, is there anything else that you recommend CISOs to do or anything that's a little strange that you think is or maybe unique about kind of what you've done?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's kind of getting internal feedback and then there's the external feedback. We talked a little bit about the external feedback. And uh, you know, getting things from our, our outside customers through maybe RFPs and, and surveys. I think internally, too, another thing we've done is actually some surveying about awareness, and how aware are you of our phishing program, how aware are you of our role management program, and then you know putting some additional communication in place where things weren't where we wanted them to be. But I think also actually sitting down with, with some of our leaders and some of the, the more influential folks in the organization and just hearing directly from them and, and building a relationship with them so that when there are situations that arise that maybe they, they have a question or concern about, that you have kind of a pre-established trust relationship. I always like to say, you know, you, you don't want to be sitting down with a leader the very first time in an incident, right? And, and trying to like build camaraderie and trust, right? When, when the sort of the, the proverbial poo is hitting the fan. So, sure. uh, you know, I definitely recommend having a very broad set of one-on-one conversations with different leaders in the organization and also understanding which folks in the organization already just really get infosec and and how can you work with those people to to help you kind of evangelize
1: do you report on any of this any of these sort of measures of so part of this is is touch points part of this is actual you know items out of this you know CI event this Kaizen event where you have these areas to improve so there's a numerical value Mm -hmm. do you report on any is that on a a, is that counted as a metric any place in in your program
0: yeah so we do report on some of the awareness numbers okay and you know specifically looking for areas where awareness wasn't where we wanted it to be and then i think the second thing um we have it obviously like like any security shop quite a few metrics and reporting obligations around vulnerability management and so uh, you know, looking for how did our process improvement efforts impact our ability to achieve, you know, better outcomes around vulnerability management is absolutely something we report. And you have to be careful because, you know, you want to be able to do some correlation there between the time you made a specific change or investment, and and what the impact was on the the metrics. So, you know, you have to be careful not to change too many things at once. Or if you are going to change a lot of things at once
1: you know, find ways to measure the specific impacts of different uh, investments you've made. So you, you kind of introed. and I think now is a, a good point to transition into this idea of continuous improvement in the example you started to give and to kind of lay a little foundation for the listener. There was an effort wanting to increase the frequency of patching and probably uh, the depth of patching. It sounds like there may have been some application level changes as well. So the need, the pressure's there. We all have it. And then furthermore, the resistance part of it was some of the testing was not automated. And so there was an application area that required a certain amount of testing, a significant number, hundreds of hours of effort to sort of recertify. And so that lays the foundation of this sort of the outcome. So we have a Kaizen event. We have have outcomes. We have things we're tracking, pressure, uh, vulnerability management. And then Steve's now going to talk to us, I hope, uh, to share a little bit about kind of the outcome. What was the, the teamwork that happened there, which is really cool to hear. So yeah, Steve, you, could you pick up there?
0: Yeah, thanks, Steve. So I think, you know, just going back a little bit, you know, the first thing was coming out of that Kaizen event, we kind of had reforged the partnership between our teams to the point where we, we took that data and said, and I think I said hundreds of hours, and I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but suffice to say a lot of testing manual after each change and, and not a lot of distinction between a security patching change versus an application change. Really, anytime there's a change, a lot of manual testing needed to occur. But we were able to go together and uh, take a proposal to leadership to make an investment in test automation and really with you know, security as the driver because that's the problem we were trying to solve. And uh, just have recently got the results of, of months of work there with a the third party to help us kind of build out a, a framework for test automation and a reference implementation for one application. And, and what you see is that, first of all, I think everyone would agree that, absent any information about you know what it might cost, that test automation is a good thing, right? The question is really what is kind of the cost-benefit analysis there, and and we worked with the app team. To really focus on the security outcome, because that's the problem we were trying to solve. But what we found is uh, there were all kinds of other intuitive, you know, positive outcomes that were measurable for that team in terms of their quality, their agility, um, you know, the time it takes them to deploy changes, the frequency with which they can deploy changes, and then obviously just sort of the the cost savings of not having to to do so much manual testing. So. It it really is finding those those unicorn situations where you can sit down with a, a partner or stakeholder, try to try to find a good security outcome that you can work on together, but also something where that investment can achieve not only a good security outcome, but you know, hopefully another secondary good outcome for that team and drive them to be you know more excited about working with you in the future and and just really like exercising your your creativity around um, shared outcomes.
1: And you know everyone's running around talking about, we want to be agile and we, you know, we want this iterative kind of solutioning and, and on and on and on. But this, this, I think, is a natural progression, I think, from what I'm hearing toward that. Meaning, you are speeding up the repair or the correction of an application. You are also then speeding up the process to ensure that it's in a known good state. And so that is maybe by extrapolation into agile, right? So you're building a shared process and a shared ownership. Do you think over time you could see whether it's vulnerability management, AppSec, or this testing merging into sort of one team as sort of as a conduit? Is is this a, could this be a a model for that?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it's always great for InfoSec to have a a great relationship with QA. And so... You know where that goes from here. I'm not sure, but we absolutely you know work closely with the the quality folks today to include security as part of what they're looking at. And I would say, Steve, too. You know, we're a, we're a large organization with everything from uh, you know significant cloud presence to you know more legacy environments. And so when you get into those those environments where it's a greenfield, everything was built natively on the cloud using CI/CD and automation. You look at that and you say, well, that's obviously the the right way to do things. How can we apply some of those learnings in some of the other environments that maybe didn't start with that greenfield? And so that's kind of part of what we're doing here. And so in those environments, you know, the relationship with our application security team, you know, is different, right? We're actually giving them code that they build into their pipelines versus sort of giving them policies, Right. But I think, you know, the Kaizen event and and this outcome of test automation is a good example of where we can we can work together and say, hey, this this is maybe not a greenfield. It's not, you know, this fully heavily automated environment and there's a lot of nuance to how the application gets tested. But we can still do something here. Right. And let's figure out, you know, roll up our sleeves and figure out how we can kind of do the best we can automate as much as possible and achieve. Um, you know, shared security outcomes, as well as, as great outcomes around quality and agility and cost efficiency.
1: So for those that are listening and are excited about this Kaizen event, and they want to replicate it, what are two, three, four, five things that you want to make sure that they do? So you're giving advice to them. Someone asks, who should be there? What, what are you, how long of an event should it be? You know, they, there's this feedback event. What are the top three things you, you would advise uh, they do if they're wanting to put on their own similar event?
0: Yeah, first of all, I think you have to understand really clearly what problem you're trying to solve and keep it focused. One of the things about process improvement efforts is the scope can get really big when you have, you know, you get a bunch of people in the room and you say, let's talk about our problems. If the scope isn't well understood, it it can get really big. Second thing I'd say is, you know, seek out experts in the organization. I, I am not a process improvement expert by craft but we have a lot of them here. And I think most organizations have, you know, at least someone who who does have expertise in that area and figure out how you can work with them. It's very valuable to have kind of an objective third party facilitating those conversations to sort of take the emotion out of it. It's also very, very important that those things happen in person, if at all possible, because one of the things that you see is, you know, some of the way we communicate today electronically can create sort of a false sense of abrasion, and when you get everyone who has a, a skin in the game in a room together and they can really look each other in the eye and across the table and see that everyone really does want to do the right thing and, and not question each other's motives, all of a sudden, a whole new level of creativity opens up, and so I think you know, having a third party facilitate it, it is super important. And then I think follow-through, Steve. You know one of the, the worst things that can happen is you kind of have this big. Um, like summer camp moment where everyone gets together and we all are singing kumbaya and then we don't follow through with those things, right? And then we kind of walk away and and all of our great ideas go to waste. So I think just having a really good plan for how you come out of the the conversation with next steps that everyone agrees to, and then have a very frequent cadence of connectivity on how you're following through with those things.
1: And I think that that makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the things I, I try to leave the listener with is some actionable things they can take away. And I think that's a good kind of review of if they're interested in having a a similar Kaizen event of kind of how to get started. We covered a lot already, and there's a lot more I'd like to cover. Obviously the section on CI was really good, but you mentioned earlier talking a little bit about celebrating success, which I think sometimes we don't do enough of. You had some ideas around that. What would you share around celebration? as it relates to security?
0: Yeah, this is one of those things that is not, I'll say it's not necessarily in my DNA, but is super important. I, I tend to be very focused on the opportunities and how can, we, how can we make progress on these things. And I don't instinctively necessarily celebrate as much, but uh, a couple of the leaders on my team have really helped me to understand the value of that and, and um, make that part of everything we do. And so a couple of things we've done, first of all, we have a, a program that forces us once a month to, to remember the importance of that. And we call them our security ninjas, um, which is kind of a fun, whimsical way to recognize a, a team or individual. Anyone can nominate a ninja. And then every month we have a really sort of fun discussion about, you know, who should be this month's ninja and why. And then we, we have these awesome little foam ninjas that we give them to put on their desk as a point of pride and, and also T-shirts, and then one of the other things we do with that is we have a couple of different levels of ninja. So, so folks who sort of persistently go above and beyond for security can kind of move up to a, a black belt level. And so that's just a really fun thing. And, and you know, we always try to, to celebrate them very publicly and, and make a big deal out of that. But then I think another thing that's important is just as you're thinking about your metrics and trying to manage by exception, right? When you're taking things to leadership, you're obviously, you know, you're, you're talking about limited time and limited attention. And so you want to stay focused on the things that really need attention. But instead of just delivering sort of the bad news part of that story, I always like to try to include one or two uh, notes about you know teams or individuals who are actually executing their security objectives really, really well, and just call those out. And, and maybe that can't be a 50/50 split in the conversation because you really need leadership to kind of focus their attention on the things that need attention. But it's also awesome to just call out some of those things that are working really well and, and try to make it again like i said it's not necessarily my first instinct but try to force yourself to include you know a couple of positive uh you know wins for security as part of every one of those conversations
1: you jumped into metrics and measures what's your favorite thing to measure
0: my favorite thing to measure well that's a really good question you know honestly uh we're doing some cool stuff right now, and then this could be a longer, we could spend the whole show on this, but my favorite thing to measure right now is aggregated security risk kind of inside a particular business application. So instead of maybe what we've historically done and looking at you know vulnerability management as a platform thing, right? We've got Windows patching, we've got Linux patching, we've got whatever, really actually flipping the context so that you're kind of looking at the vertical and looking at more than just vulnerability management, but what are all of the characteristics of security risk that go into an application, whether that's you know a third party that helps you support it, whether that's components of the architecture and access management. But when you can align security risk along that vertical axis, all of a sudden you unlock a lot of communication power because business leaders understand the portfolio of applications they rely on. And so if you can kind of talk about that and say, hey, this this critical application that you rely on is not meeting security expectations in three of the 10 domains we measure, then all of a sudden you're, you're having a relevant conversation. And then it's also something that can be aggregated, right? So I can say, not only can I have the conversation kind of at the single application level, but maybe there's 25 applications that support the finance organization and I can look at those as a, as a unit and aggregate that and have a, a hyper-relevant conversation with business leaders. So, so anything we can measure that actually translates well into a business conversation, and that's kind of the approach we're taking right now is, is uh, looking at that as more of a business application layer conversation and metric than a platform metric.
1: So two things said kind of plainly there. One, you are counting risk. You are adding it up kind of uniquely and then you're comparing it by application name rather than IP server name, environment name, that kind of thing. So you allow yourself, I guess saying it the other way is you can compare based on a term or an idea that the business understands, but then you're rolling it up sounds like, and maybe you could share, you mentioned vulnerability management information, you mentioned architectural, what are some examples? Like give us three things, four things that you sort of add up. And then maybe how do you add those up?
0: Yeah, first I'll start with a server and an application are not analogous. So, you know, an application consists of a lot of different components. It might have a database component, a middleware component, an application tier, some custom code. There might be a vendor that supports it. So they're not all alike. So we're, we're actually, when I talk about an application, I'm talking about the collection of components that comprise that application. It might be 50 hosts and part of a database server and some different things. So think about it that way and not as kind of a IP address equals, you know, one application. Some of the things that we're looking at, and, and really the approach here is that there are no unmanaged gaps. So if we think there's some security risk in this application, we should be measuring it somewhere. So the architecture is sort of the foundation of that conversation. And, and when we talk about architecture, we're talking about just some of the basic architectural expectations for any application around cryptography, around access management, around logging, and all of these different expectations we have. And we also have kind of a patch management component, vulnerability management component for many applications we have custom code and so we may be layering on static analysis, dynamic analysis, source code analysis and looking at vulnerabilities in libraries. Some of our applications live in a container environment so we might be looking at container security. Everything at the host level has a security hardening expectation, right? So we're looking at you know, the CIS benchmark usually serving as kind of the starting point there. So it's really the, and I think he gave you more than three there, but it's really the collection of all of the different risk factors for an application and then rolling those up collectively so that you're not just banging on a server admin to, to do something that's really outside of his or her influence, you're really having a business conversation. And then where there are challenges, helping a business leader understand, you know, what it will take and what the resources look like to kind of improve that and drive a more productive conversation between the the business folks and, and maybe the infrastructure application folks than you might have today.
1: How do you go through and tag? The IT people and the security people don't necessarily know all of what makes up each business system. Right. And the business owner doesn't necessarily know how many servers or IP addresses or collective sort of technical DNA is a part of this. So how, where do you meet? How do you bring that together? Because that's almost impossible.
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. And I'll, and I'll tell you, when we started ideating around this a couple of years ago, that was, you know, a gap that we needed to, to talk about. And. You know, for, for every organization, there's uh, generally this notion of a CMDB or configuration management database. And I think keeping that thing current is, is something that everyone struggles with. But what was really interesting for us is when we said, here's this idea. Here's how we want to start changing the way we think about metrics and measurement around security risks as it relates to our business applications. And a prerequisite for that is that we actually have to have really good asset management and a really good mapping of uh, which infrastructure supports which applications. That created a whole new level of excitement and and energy around actually kind of going after that problem because now there's a really critical part of the organization needing to consume that. And by that, I mean InfoSec, right? And so having kind of the weight of the security team behind making some investments in that that CMDB and the accuracy of that thing has created a a whole snowball effect of success in uh, in how much we can rely on that. And then the other thing I'll say, Steve, is in the cloud environment, um, it's actually a a simpler problem because in cloud, we actually just use tagging to uh, determine which applications are supported by which components. And so as long as we've got a pretty good process for the automated deployment of cloud resources, and we can bake our tagging standards into that, you actually have kind of a a very simple, you know, always updated view into your kind of that infrastructure mapping for your cloud environment.
1: So one thing I think that you, I heard that you did there that I wanted to highlight is that you seemingly sold the benefit of what this could bring, but you didn't go at it saying we need better CMDB or we need better asset management or, we, or asset sort of life cycle of management. We want to be able to compare application to application. So it, sort of, it sounds like you sort of sold that first. And then the benefit from it that made the effort to go with it a little easier.
0: Right. Yeah. When we talk about that outcome and, and everyone starts to get about excited about that outcome, you know, it allows us the luxury of talking about the prerequisites, right? And the most foundational prerequisite is that we have that CMDB well shored up. And and we weren't starting from zero, right? We had a pretty good CMDB already. It was just more about, has anyone ever tested the accuracy of it? And if we start, if we all of a sudden start reporting a kind of an application security score and there's infrastructure mapped to the wrong application, We're either going to be, you know, punishing someone for infrastructure that doesn't belong to them, or in some cases, crediting them for the good security hygiene of infrastructure that doesn't belong to that app. And so it's really important that we we test that. And so, yeah, like you said, um, it really started with selling the vision. And then once we agree that that's the right thing to do, going back and looking at, okay, what are the building blocks that need to happen to get there? And, And as you and I both know, you know, the CIS top 20, you know, includes very close to the top of that list, just sort of the asset management. And so, uh, everyone can get behind that. Um, but it is, it is a non-trivial problem. And, and I, I do empathize in the situations where people are starting, you know, further back than we were. We, we had a pretty good start on it. It was more just a matter of fine tuning and kind of testing
1: it. So pursuant to the title and the name of the show, we always close on this. To you, what does being a new CISO mean to you, Steve?
0: What does being a new CISO mean to me? Well, I think it just means taking on a new set of expectations, holding yourself to a a new degree of accountability to be aligned with business and, and going from someone who maybe is just solely focused on security as a practice to someone who is looking at how security fits into the larger business context of the organization and what it means for your, your customers and how you serve them. And I think you know, that's, that's really the pivot point is just seeing security as part of the business context and understanding how to make part of the success story, part of the sales story, part of what you're excellent at,
1: at that broader context than just kind of down in the weeds. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. We covered an immense amount of information. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and and being a guest on the new CISO.
0: You bet, Steve. My pleasure.
1: That concludes this episode of the new CISO. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more episodes, suggest a topic, or nominate a guest, please visit exabeam.com forward slash podcast.